starting a new sermon series this morning, uh, Marked for Purpose. We're starting a series of messages going through the gospel of Mark. Um, So let me just, at the outset, want to give you a little bit of framework, a little bit of context as we start a new series. Uh, We often will go through books of the Bible in our messages here at Mount Hope. There's a reason for that. Uh, We think the Bible is God's word. That's what we believe. And we believe that God's words are more important than my words or anyone else's. So we, our messages aren't based around, uh, if you're new to Mount Hope, uh, our messages aren't based around the latest ideas or the latest thoughts or anything like that. Uh, Every message we give is based around the Bible and uh, the books of the Bible. And I will often, in our sermon series, at times we'll do topical series. We've done that. We've done some on relationships. We do topical series throughout the year in a couple different spots. But most of the time, we'll be going through a book of the Bible. And the reason is because when you go through a book of the Bible, it forces you to look at all the different aspects of the things the Bible says. When you uh, don't do that and you just do topical series, sometimes you pick and choose. Sometimes a pastor, believe it or not, will pick and choose topics that are comfortable or that he likes preaching or that he uh, enjoys and avoid some of the ones that may be harder and more difficult. Uh, Pastors are human too. Uh, So preaching through, uh, going through a a series of messages on one book of the Bible forces us to deal sometimes with difficult texts, uh, harder texts, and to get a full scope of what is being said. So it's been a while since we did a gospel. Uh, Matthew, I think we finished a few years ago. If you were here with us, it took a few years for us to get through it. I think there were 92 or three messages by the time we finished the gospel of Matthew. Uh, Mark's not going to be quite that long. It's a shorter book, uh, and we're going to deal with it a little different way. It's not going to be quite as long, but it is going to take us a little bit of time. We'll be in it for a while. We'll probably uh, be in Mark for most of 2014, coming up to, uh, through the summer. We'll take a break from it for uh, missions in October and a couple things at the end of the year around Christmas, and we'll come back to it in 2015 as we walk through this gospel together. I think it's important for us to get into especially the gospels. Uh, A gospel is nothing more than the life and times, the account, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're not familiar with the Bible, there are four different gospel accounts in your Bible that you, you have there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four different gospel accounts. Uh, Each one has a little bit different uh, audience that it was written to, that God inspired the writer to write to. So it ends up with a little bit different, um, uh, some nuances to it. It would just be like if you or I were writing an account of the exact same event, depending on who we're writing to, may uh, change or account for what we include in the writing. If you're writing to a child you may include different things in the account than if you're writing to an adult, if you're writing to a stranger, or if you're writing to someone you know. So Matthew includes different things because he's writing to a Jewish audience than Mark or Luke includes that are writing to primarily non-Jewish audience. So they include more of Jesus' interaction with non-Jewish people, uh, where Matthew includes a lot of references and a lot of language that would be familiar to a Jewish audience. So that's kind of the, um, just a little bit of an overview there. Uh, And I want to talk a little bit about Mark in particular uh, and what and who it was written to. But before we do that, why don't we read the passage this morning? It's Mark chapter 1, 
verses 1 through 20. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version this morning. Let me just take an opportunity to say something a little bit about that too. So you have different versions of the Bible, right? Uh, If you don't know that, maybe that's news to you. But there are different versions of the Bible. If you go into Barnes & Noble and you say, I want a Bible, you're going to go to a shelf that'll have maybe 100 of Bibles. There's going to be a lot of different versions of the Bible. And you say, how can there be so many different versions of the Bible? Is one right, one wrong? Um, So there are different translations. So often on Sunday morning, you'll hear us use the New International Version or NIV, which is a good translation of the Bible. Uh, Sometimes I'll use the NLT, the New Living Translation. This morning I'm using the ESV, the English Standard Version. And so there's not, uh, not that one is right or wrong over the other. What happens is whenever you're translating a language, you have to make decisions on how you're going to translate certain words, right? So how many of you speak more than one language? I'm going to put my hand down because I don't, but you keep your hands up. How many of you speak more than two languages? Keep your hands up. Three? Four? That was our limit in the first. Anyway, do I, am I missing a hand? That was our limit in the first service too. Oh, four, five? Six? Seven? Eight? Nine? Nine languages. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so if you need a form translated, this, you know, you can head right away. Nine languages. That's, that's an old joke. It's probably a bad joke, but um, it goes like this. You know, someone who speaks three languages is trilingual. Someone who speaks two is bilingual. What do you call someone who speaks one language? American. Yeah, that's... <laughs> pretty much true sometimes. Uh, You know, we have a lot of people in our church that uh, English is their second or third or fourth language. And oftentimes when you're talking to me, sometimes you apologize. Oh, pastor, I, you know, I I don't know how to say this. And uh, my response is don't apologize to me. I'm the one that only speaks one language. I should be apologizing to you. Uh, But when you're, if you speak more than one language, you realize something, right? When you're trying to translate something from one language to another, or from your mother tongue into a second or third language, you always have to make a decision, right? There's a lot of times there's not an exact word that brings across the same nuance, the same exact meaning. Uh, You have to choose sometimes a phrase to translate one word, or sometimes if you come from a culture, uh, you know, that uh, that uses a lot of images and things, sometimes you have to use a paragraph, to get across the nuance of a word. So Bible translators have to do the same thing. The scriptures that you hold in your hands in English or in whatever language you might be reading them this morning were translated originally from Hebrew and Greek. The Old Testament written in Hebrew and the New Testament written in Greek. So anytime someone's going to translate a Hebrew word or a Greek word to English, they have to make a decision. Is Maybe there's a one-for-one word, but... Many times there isn't, and so they have to decide how they're going to translate a word. So that's why sometimes on a Sunday morning, I say all that to say this, sometimes you'll see me and you'll say, it'll see the ESV up there, or it'll say the NIV. It's usually because there's a nuance or a word that was translated a particular way that I prefer that translation over another uh, on that day with that particular passage. It's not that one's right or wrong, it's just often uh, the nuance that the translators chose 
uh, comes out differently. So, and that's the case this morning. And I'll share with you in a few minutes uh, the word that I think the ESV translates um, a little bit more clearer than uh, the NIV in this case. So Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 20, this is how the gospel of Mark starts. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So Mark begins his gospel. Let me give you a little bit of background to who Mark was writing to. As I said earlier, I think it's helpful for us to understand who's being written to and who the audience is to help us understand the passage before us this morning. Mark, as best we can tell, was written uh, first century AD, right? We're talking about the first century early church, probably somewhere between uh, 55 and 60, 62 AD, somewhere in that area. Um, And he was writing to Christians, as best we can tell, living in Rome. He wrote this gospel for their benefit. Uh, And he was likely even living in Rome himself, helping either the apostle Paul or others that were there. And he wrote this account of the life of Jesus Christ. So it's important to understand what was going on in Rome at the time that Mark was writing. You might remember the name Nero. 
In 54 AD, Nero became the emperor of Rome. Uh, For the first five years, he was a fairly unremarkable emperor, somewhat responsible, I guess, as a leader. About 59 AD, about five years into his reign, he seemed to go off the rails, Uh, became more of a tyrant, a selfish, uh, a despot of a leader. He... um, you might remember the Roman Senate, if you've studied uh, your, your way back in your history, if you've been out of school for a while. Remember the Roman Senate, the senators, the government system uh, that Rome was set up? Nero undermined the Senate in a huge way. He exploited them for his control. One way he did this, he taxed the senators uh, to, a, to a certain way that really indemnitied them to him. Uh, that didn't just happen now, it happens then. Right? I mean, people do that, right? They, to gain power and control, he put a tax on many of the wealthy people to gain control over them. He would tax childless couples. Some of the wealthy families were childless couples. Some of the senators, uh, for some reason or another, were childless families, and he put a heavy tax on them. And this uh, crippled them in many ways. He would level false accusations against senators and wealthy people, and then confiscate their wealth from them. And in this way, he would gain power and control. It wouldn't be beyond him to, uh, to kill, even to gain power and control. And so at, at the point in his reign, the Senate was really at his disposal, and he was really uh, running the show. And that was bad enough. As far as Christians in the time... They were a real minority population. Think of it. So 55, 60 AD, Jesus was crucified, as best we can tell, probably around the year 30, 31, um, maybe around that year AD. He was probably born. uh, And I know there's some discrepancy about this, but as best I can tell in my research, Jesus was probably born around 4 BC. Um, the, the zero year is probably not quite accurate in some of the historical information we know um, because Herod was killed before then. Uh, so 4 BC was probably about when Jesus was born. Probably about 30 AD was when Jesus was crucified, 30, 31. So 60 AD, 30 years after that, it's not a very long period of time, especially in this historical period where travel was a little more difficult than it is today. So you're talking from Jerusalem to Rome, you've got a small group of Christians that are meeting there. A small group of people who have become followers of Jesus that are meeting in Rome, relatively unnoticed, just a small part of the population. The Roman government did notice them a little bit, though, They leveled charges against them that weren't that serious, but they were called hatred of men. And what a hatred of men charge was basically saying they don't play very well with others. Uh, The Christians wouldn't take part in pagan rituals or feasts. They wouldn't come out for feasts that involved idolatry or immorality. And so uh, they had this charge against them that they were uh, hatred of men. Uh, Basically, they... They didn't always come out and do the things that everyone else did. But they were relatively unbothered. Rome didn't really pay much attention to them. 64 AD was the great fire of Rome. Uh, 14 wards or districts in Rome, uh, only four of them were spared from the fire. 
Three of them were reduced to complete ash and rubble. Most all of them lost the historical and important buildings. So imagine the city of Boston, right, made up of all these little towns and cities, right? Imagine a fire not sweeping through one building, not sweeping through one street, not one neighborhood, but sweeping through the entire city over a period of weeks, an entire neighborhood. This would be like Dorchester being completely wiped out or Roxbury being completely wiped out. I mean, major aspects of the city being completely destroyed, reduced to ash and rubble. Rumors started flying, and there's probably some truth to them as far as history tells that Nero may have had something to do with actually setting the fire. There are historical uh, quotes from this time of uh, officials that saw uh, part of Nero's government come into their fields, but they wouldn't do anything because Nero had so much control and so much power, so they wouldn't say anything. But Nero would do, did then what any politician would do now. He tried to better his name. He provided food for those who were hungry. He provided clothing. He provided shelter. Anything a good politician would do today to get people and to appease people, especially people who are accusing him of wrongdoing. But it wasn't working. So he went to step two of what any politician would do today. He found someone to blame. He shifted the blame from himself. But who could he blame? Who wouldn't speak up? Who would just take it? Who wouldn't make a fuss? Who couldn't fight back? This small minority group of Christians, followers of the way. Nero started accusing them of setting the fire. He blamed the entire fire on Christians for burning down the city of Rome. You can imagine what the backlash would be, right? I mean, we saw the efforts after the marathon bombing last year to catch two guys that injured hundreds of people, right, and scared a whole city. Imagine what it would be to catch the people that caused a fire that burned down most of the city. Imagine what the backlash would be. And so Nero sets out to go after the Christians. He arrests them. He sentenced them. One account says he would tie animal skins to them and feed them to wild dogs that would tear them apart. He had them crucified. Perhaps the most gruesome and disgusting thing that we have an account of what Nero did is he would take Christians and use them as human torches in his garden to light his garden as he burned them. And he would invite the public through the garden. And this is the way Nero would treat these Christians. Now, this is the first time Christians in Rome had ever experienced persecution. Remember, we're a long ways away from Jerusalem. Yeah, there was persecution in Jerusalem with the Jewish authorities, but Rome is not a Jewish city. Christians had lived there relatively peacefully. And now they find themselves persecuted and their lives threatened. And Mark writes his gospel to these people. He writes an account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when he does, 
he really focuses, and you're going to see this as we go through the book of Mark, more than any other gospel writer, on Jesus as the suffering servant. More than any other of the gospel writers, you'll see Mark really have an emphasis on the trials and the sufferings of Jesus that he went through. More than any other gospel, you'll see in the gospel of Mark, as, 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 he, as he does, Jesus does a miracle, Mark re- makes sure to record when he says, don't tell anybody about this. And why? Well, because Jesus doesn't want people confused. He's not a, he, he didn't come to do miracles in, in, in the sense of being people's entertainment or, or just personal healer. He came to be their Lord, and they wanted to make sure he got that suffering Messiah part right. So Mark, even in the first passage we read today, he's the only gospel writer that records these words. And he, Jesus, was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals. He's the only gospel writer that records that. Why? Partly because those people in Rome, if they hear that Jesus was with wild animals, they know people who are being torn apart and killed by wild animals in their day and in their age, right where they are in their area. And so he records this fact that Jesus went out to the wilderness with the wild animals. And that would have been somewhat comforting. He's also the gospel writer that at the end of his gospel, he includes the statement by the Roman centurion at the cross of Jesus Christ when he says, surely this man was the son of God. Now think about that. If you're in Rome and you are scared for your life from the government, and you are scared that a Roman soldier is going to come to your door and knock on your door and drag you out or your family member and have you killed, how comforting would it be when one of the gospel writers remembers the event and the account of a Roman centurion proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God? And so he's writing his gospel to a group of people who are persecuted, who a group of people who are Uh, scared for their life, but are committed to following Jesus. And so he starts his gospel out saying there was a man in the wilderness, John, baptizing. And he says, and Jesus came to the wilderness to be baptized, and Jesus went out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And that's the word, the reason I chose the English Standard Version, because the NIV translates it desert, but I really feel like wilderness is a more accurate depiction of the word of what Mark's trying to bring across there. It's, it's, it's a wilderness. It's untamed. It's scary. Yes, it's desolate. And the people in Rome and those Christians would feel scared, and it's untamed, and they don't know what's coming. But Jesus went there, too, to the wilderness. And sometimes maybe you and I feel like we're in the wilderness, a place that is difficult and desolate and scary. God's people have a history of in the wilderness, right? When God's people, the Israelites, came out of Egypt, where did God lead them? To the wilderness. Forty years they were there, and yet God's presence was there with them. So when Jesus comes on the scene for the first time, comes on the scene at baptism, which is interesting, because it's water, God's people delivered through the Red Sea and the Jordan River, And then Jesus comes and starts the ministry out with his baptism in water, in the wilderness. 
And Jesus shows up in that place and in that spot. And so we start out this gospel with a very hopeful account, a very hopeful uh, account of the fact that Jesus himself has experienced what we experience. Jesus himself can relate to these Christians that Mark is writing to. But how do you get out of the wilderness? That's what I want to talk about just for the next few minutes this morning. And how do you get out of the wilderness? The important thing of getting out of the wilderness this morning, and this is what I want to focus on, is you've got to make a two-point turn. And I want to talk to you this morning about making a two-point turn. And just for a few minutes this morning looking at that. The, um, the disciples made a two-point turn. And I believe if you're going to follow Jesus or I'm going to follow Jesus and you're going to get out of a wilderness place or you're going to follow God, you've got to make a two-point turn. The two points are this. John came and baptized people for repentance and forgiveness of sins, right? If you look at Mark chapter 1, verse 4, it said, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But then if you jump down to verse 15, it said, Jesus said this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And a two-point turn following Jesus contains both of these things. Repentance, forgiveness, turning, we'll call that turning away, and then believing in Jesus and having faith, and we'll call that turning towards. So following Jesus requires a two-point turn to turn away from things in our life, sins and harmful things in our life that aren't pleasing to God, but then it also requires a turning towards God. So here's why I think this is important to, for us to focus on this morning, because I think some people are comfortable with one part of that turn. I think many times people are comfortable with one part or the other of that turn. I think sometimes people are comfortable turning away from things, but they don't want to turn toward Jesus. So it's like this. You, you might say, well, yeah, I want to get rid of some things in my life. And you might say, well, pastor, that's part of the reason I'm in church this morning. Look, I'm, I want to be a better person. Right? I mean, why would I sit here on a Sunday morning? You know, I, I could be doing so many other things. I'm here because I want to be a better person. I want to be better. I want to I be clean. There's things in my life that I want to change, that I want to stop. And there are things in my life that I want to turn away from. And many people would say that. Say, I want to stop doing some things in my life. And maybe you would say, I've done that. I've been a part of the program bought the book, I went to the group, I stopped doing things that were harmful and hurtful because I want to be a better person. And so I've stopped doing those things. I've left that way of life. I've repented of them. They're gone and I've left them out of my life. So, you know, many people I think would say that. And you'd say maybe you've taken some tangible steps. You stopped hanging around with a group of friends that was leading you down the wrong path. You unfriended that person on Facebook that was leading you down the road. It was a bad influence on you. You got rid of the cable subscription that was causing you in the late hours of the night when no one else was around to fill your mind with things that shouldn't have been filled with. You, you changed your computer settings. Whatever it was, you said, I've stopped doing the things that were harmful but I still don't 
have what I'm looking for. But I still haven't found peace, that I still haven't found answers, that I still haven't found healing. I think part of that is because we only perform one part of the two-point turn. It's like if you're going to try and eat better and you say, you know what, these burgers or fries are killing me, literally. Right? I mean, they're clogging my arteries. They're slowing me down. They're, you know, they're just no good. So I'm just going to quit the burgers and fries, and I'm going to quit the fried food, and I'm going to quit the saturated fats or whatever. And you know what? Uh, just to be safe, I'm going to quit eating altogether. <laughs> Stop it. We're just going to not do it anymore because then I won't put anything bad in my body. See, you turn away from something, but you never turn toward Something And of course, it's not going to help. You stop eating altogether. It's going to make you more unhealthy than you were before. And you're going to die even quicker than if you ate the burgers and fries. So feel good about eating your burgers and fries at lunch today. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's silly. But it's what people do in life sometimes too. They stop doing things that are harmful. But they never turn towards anything that's helpful. They just figure... I'll just stop doing things that are bad. And you know what we call, a, we, have, we call, we know people like that, and we call people, you know what we call people like that? We call them a nice guy or a nice girl. Oh, yeah, he's a nice guy. He doesn't do anything harmful, doesn't do anything hurtful, doesn't hurt people, doesn't seem to hurt himself, doesn't seem, you know, he's a nice guy. And oftentimes, that's the greatest goal of people in life, to just be a nice guy. But nice guys don't get into heaven. It's not about being nice because there's a second part of the turn that's critical and that's important and that's turning towards Jesus. But I think there's some people that are comfortable turning towards Jesus but they just don't want to leave anything behind. They're comfortable executing the part of the turn that says, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe in him. I follow him. I sign on the dotted line. I attend church. I bring my Bible. I, I, you know, I do all that. I believe in Jesus. But I'm not going to stop doing anything in my life that I've been doing. I'm not, I'm not going to change anything. I want to I keep living the life I, the way I want to live it and have Jesus. There's a word for this theologians have. It's called syncretism. Syncretism just means you take what you want from any belief system and you syncretize it into whatever you want to believe. And it usually ends up in no belief system at all. It just ends up that we make God in our image instead of him making us in his image. And, and so this happens, right? We, we say, well, I like this part of following Jesus, but I don't like this part, so I'm just going to live my life, but I love Jesus, I have Jesus in my life, and I'm I, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And you look at somebody's life and you say, you're a Christian? I got my Bible and it looks a little different. Why? Because we live in a day and age when people feel like, well, we can just pick and choose what we want and we become the gods because we choose what's right. We choose what, the way we'll live our life. And if something doesn't sound right to us, we say, ah, oh, no, I can't be right. And so we live our lives the way we want to live it. I, I liken it too if uh, you have a car, uh, maybe a particular car I, that, that, that is very particular on its fuel, like 
One of my favorite cars when I was a kid, I used to love Ferraris. I think I watched too much Magnum PI when I was a kid, right? And that cherry red Ferrari that Magnum drives through Hawaii, right? Pretty cool, right? Imagine having that Ferrari and pulling up to the gas station and putting diesel fuel in it, right? And you put diesel fuel in it, and you say, well, I've got regular gas in it too, and, you know, I'm going to put them both in it because, you know, i got diesel here, and that's convenient, and just so you know, Ferraris don't run on diesel fuel, And if you try and put diesel gas and regular gas in a Ferrari, I'm not a mechanic. I'm just guessing you're not going too far and certainly not too fast. It's meant to run in a certain way. You have to put the right kind of gas in it for it to run properly. But sometimes people want to live their life this way. I want Jesus, and I want a few other things in my life too that may not be pleasing to Jesus, but I'm going to have them all. And then we're surprised. Why isn't this working for me? Why don't I have the peace that I thought I would have? Why doesn't it seem like God's hearing my prayers? What's what's going on? Because you've executed one part of the two-point turn. You've chosen to follow Jesus, but you haven't chosen to repent and leave your old life behind. And what the beginning of Mark tells us is it's a two-point turn. You've got to turn away and you've got to turn towards. And so many of us are comfortable with one part or another of that. But if you and I are going to follow Jesus, it means turning away from those things in our lives that we know are sinful, not pleasing to God, and turning towards following him. It's what the disciples did, right? That's the end of this passage that we just read. Simon and Andrew, James and John, left their nets, followed Jesus. He said, follow me. Dropped their nets, left their boats, and followed Jesus. Left the old way, turned away from that, and turned towards following Jesus. Jesus said, Jesus was saying, you can't do both. You can't be a fisherman and be a fisher of men. He said that to Peter and Andrew. I want to make you a fisher of men. You're a fisherman. I want to make you a fisher of men. So they left their nets and they followed him. Jesus is asking us today the same question. What's the net he's asking you to leave? It may not be he's asking you to leave your job. Maybe he is. If God's called you into ministry someplace or to move someplace or to be a part of another job for his glory, then, then you've got to do that. But many times he's not going to ask you, he, he doesn't ask many of us uh, to, to pick up and leave right where we're at, but he does ask us to change completely our attitude where we are living so that we are no longer just fishermen, but you're a fisher of men in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your group of friends, that you change your identity completely by turning away and turning towards God. So my question this morning is simple. What part of the turn do you need to execute better? What part of the turn are you not executing very well in your life as a follower of Jesus? Maybe you would sit here this morning and you would say, you know what? There are some things in my life that I have been letting hang around that are coming between me and Jesus that I need to just get rid of. It's like when the 
Israelites left Egypt, they didn't take around, they didn't take with them the little Egyptian gods, you know, and say, well, we want God and our Egyptian gods too. No, 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 leave that stuff behind. You're following the one true God. But sometimes, maybe you're saying, well, I want to follow Jesus, but I got a couple other things I'd like to have up there with him too. I got a couple other things that are going to come before him. I got a couple other things that are going to get more of my time, attention, resources, and energy than Jesus. And maybe there's some things in your life that you need to say, I need to turn away from them this morning. I need to get rid of them. I need to repent of them because they are keeping me from having a close relationship with Jesus. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, you know what? I've stopped a lot of things in my life, but I've tried to do it in my own strength. I've tried to follow God in my own strength. I've tried to, I, I've tried to become a better person in my own strength, and I've never really turned towards God. I've stopped a lot of the things that were toxic, that were harmful, that were unhealthy, that were sinful, but I've never turned towards God, and I'm getting tired of trying to do it in my own strength. Or maybe you're here this morning, and you're saying, I'm just about to give up on this thing because you think you've made the turn because you've left an old way of life, but you haven't really fully embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Everyone wants him as their Savior, who doesn't want to be saved? Who wouldn't want to be saved from hell? Who wouldn't want to be saved from pain? Who wouldn't want to be saved from, from, from destruction? Who wouldn't want to? Everyone wants him as Savior. But few people want him as Lord. Few people want him as the center of their life that everything else is built around that everything else revolves around, that everything else is subservient to. And the truth is, he can't be one without the other. Follow me. Drop your nets. Turn away. And turn towards. It's a two-point turn. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, yeah, I've, I've stopped some things that were unhealthy. I've left the toxic things behind but I've never really fully embraced Christ as my Lord and Savior. I want to give you an opportunity this morning to, to do that and to respond. I'm going to ask our worship team to come back. And as they're coming back, I want to ask you to stand, and I'm going to pray in a moment. And as we do, we've got a couple minutes this morning, and here's how I'd like to end the service as the worship team comes to sing and to lead us in worship. Simple call, two-point turn, repent and believe. And what I'd like to do this morning is offer you the opportunity to come and pray and be prayed for whatever aspect and wherever you are in life. Perhaps you're here this morning and you say, you know what? I, uh, I've turned towards Jesus I follow him, I come to church, I'm here, aren't I, on a Sunday morning? But there are some things in my life that I have let hang around, that I have not let go of, that I have not turned away from, and I know God wants me to turn away from them. I know that they are coming between me and the Lord. I know that they are hurting my relationship with the Lord, and I need to get rid of them this morning. 
I don't want you to leave the room this morning the same as you came in and taking that stuff out with you that you came in with. And I believe God can set you free from it. And so here's what I want to do. There's an altar here on my left, your right. And if that's you, when we worship and after I pray, I want to invite you to come up and just kneel at this altar. And all an altar is is a place we offer ourselves for God. We offer on the altar a sacrifice. For us, it's a living sacrifice to God. And we ask God to alter us. And on this, this side of the stage, my left, your right, if that's you, if you say, look, there's something I need to get rid of, there's something I need to repent of, there's something that's coming between me and God, and it just needs to be gone, I'm going to ask you to come and kneel there, and I've asked our elders and their wives to be available to pray for you. They're going to come, and, and they're going to lay their hand on you and pray for you, and if you're on this side of the altar, they are going to pray that God would set you free and help you to turn away from things in your life that you need to turn away from. You don't have to tell them what it is, they're not going to ask you, they're just going to come and pray for you. They're not scary people. They just want to pray for you. And they'll come and lay their hand on you and pray that God would set you free and you would be able to leave here whatever it is you need to turn away from. But maybe you're in that other side. You say, you know, I've turned away from stuff, but I'm trying to live this life in my own strength and I've never really fully turned towards Jesus. Or I did maybe long ago, but since then, my life has been lived for myself, for other interests, and I've never fully embraced Christ as my Lord and my Savior. And if that's you, I want you to come to my right, your left, and kneel at this altar, and our elders and their wives will come and they'll pray for you and pray that God would help you to fully and passionately and completely pursue him and give yourself completely to him. And, and I guess if you feel like you're in both those categories in the middle of the stage is, is yours. You can come and kneel here and, and we'll pray that God will help you to make that full turn, that full turn of repenting, turning away from, and turning towards. But I want to give you the opportunity this morning to pray and to be prayed for and to leave here different than you came in. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, that the way you called Peter and Andrew, James and John, is the way you're still calling people today. You call us to follow you, to repent for the forgiveness of our sins and to believe in you, to turn away and to turn towards. God, would you help us this morning those ones that come forward saying there's things in my life that I gotta turn away from and I don't wanna leave here the same way I come in. Would you help them to leave it here and turn away from that to repent? Lord, this morning, those that come forward and say, I need to turn towards Christ because I haven't fully embraced him. I have not fully embraced him or, or, or lately I've been living as something else has been Lord in my life. Would you help them to pursue you passionately and that nothing would come between them and you, Lord. Father, we love you, Lord. Help us to follow you, Lord, with nothing in the way, nothing hindering us. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name that you would lead us today. Amen. Come forward as the worship team begins to play for repentance on this side, for pursuing God over here, and we want to pray for you.